think that one of the truly beautiful things about the kingdom that we Christians belong to is the presence of paradox. Paradox is two seemingly non-compliant ideas that, that work together. So things like to truly live, we must die to ourselves. Life and death together, that's a paradox. The idea that we are closest to God when we recognize how far we are from him, it's a paradox. Beautiful one. The idea that the blood of an innocent brings grace to the guilty is a paradox and a beautiful one. Um, but there's no place where the kingdom paradoxes are more, are more clear than in the realm of power. Um, when it comes to power in the New Testament, it is one continual paradox after another, built on one profoundly beautiful life-giving lesson of Jesus after another. So things like Jesus says, how shall, how shall I compare the kingdom of God? To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? To a powerful cedar of Lebanon, this great majestic tree. To a short but hardy and strong fig tree. To an attention-grabbing lily of the valley. Beautiful, grabs your attention. Does he compare the kingdom of God to any of those things? Nope, none of those. Nothing large, nothing prominent, nothing strong. Nothing beautiful. Rather, he compares it to something common, something small, something insignificant. What does he compare the kingdom of heaven to? A mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds. Essentially, a weed that takes over the whole garden once it's planted. That's what mustard seeds would do. Um, choking out the more beautiful and powerful plants and spreading and spreading. Kind of like rhubarb. Just you cannot kill it. It just always grows back. Mustard seeds are undeterred by their tininess or their commonness or their ugliness or their simplicity. They just grow, spread. And that is what power looks like in the kingdom. Small, spreadable. Or how does Jesus command his followers to behave in the face of oppression, religious animosity? Does he say, rise up and conquer with military might? Does he plant the victorious flag of Jerusalem in the bloodied soil of Rome? Does he say to overcome pagan kings and violent kingdoms with holy justice and righteous war? None of those things. Rather, he says, disarm your oppressors through courageous and creative acts of nonviolent confrontation. Acts of love and forgiveness and grace. So if an enemy forces you to march a mile, uh, burdened by their gears of war, of their oppressive campaign against you, if they force you to walk a mile, well, you march it two miles. Does an enemy commit a dehumanizing act of violence against your body? Does he harm you physically? Well, you present the other cheek to be harmed as well. In doing so, you expose their ugliness and you confront their hate head on. You pray for them with earnest hope for redemption. You strip them of their power by demonstrating what is truly powerful. Truth and freedom and forgiveness and love. And finally, how does Jesus demonstrate his glorious power of king of creation? Does he leap off temples unharmed? Does he force all of humanity to his knees in fearful adoration? Does he associate with the powerful and rise to political favor? Does he ascend to a throne in David's holy city of Jerusalem? No, none of those things. In fact, he refuses to leap. He refuses to serve himself. He serves humankind rather than forcing service to himself. He aligns himself not with the powerful, but with the powerless, with the impoverished and the unloved and the uncared for. 
And he doesn't ascend to a throne in Jerusalem. Rather, he ascends to a cross. Shamed and forsaken, a slave dying like a criminal. That's how power is won in the kingdom. That's how Jesus demonstrated how power is won through smallness, through servitude, through submission, sacrifice. All of this is a paradox. Well, in the light of Stephen and Stephen's monumental turning point in the book of Acts, over the course of the next two weeks, we will examine three case studies in power. Philip, Peter and John, and Simon. Simon actually shows up both weeks because he's fascinating. And in these case studies, we'll look at power, where power comes from, what it looks like, and what purpose it serves. This power is not familiar to the world because it looks nothing like the power that the world thinks to and creates. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is built on supreme divine power. Don't get me wrong. The kingdom of God is all about power. It's just that it takes some practice seeing it and experiencing it through new eyes. So let's look at the intersecting stories of Philip, Peter, and John, and Simon to develop an understanding of power in the book of Acts as well as the tiny little church in Clyde, Alberta. We're going to read verses 4 to 13 of chapter 8. The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the, to the city of Samaria, or maybe your translation says to a city in Samaria, and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. There was a man named Simon, and he had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip had performed. Actually, we'll stop there. So I should have said 13, not 14. And so we begin this study of power with Philip and his obvious contrast, Simon the Magician. But, of course, the passage doesn't really begin with Philip. It actually begins with Stephen. Stephen's witness, his martyrdom, is a brilliant display of what I had said earlier about power, about laying down your life to find life, about submitting to the authorities in order to defeat their power. The self-righteous and misguided shepherds of Israel, that's the Sanhedrin, the high council, had performed capital punishment on Stephen, which is the ultimate form of, of of enforcing your power on someone. There's no stronger display of power than to kill someone. The Sanhedrin didn't have supreme political power in the area. Rome did. But they had a lot of clout. They did have a lot of political power. But that's not where they got their, their, their power. That's not where their power was ultimately derived from. Not from political power, but from religious power. That's how they held authority over the people. They were the gatekeepers of the presence of God. They were the ones who decided who was in, who was out. Um, and they zealously guarded that presence of God from both filthy commoners and from dangerous heretics, like this ignorant peasant speaking boldly in their midst. Stephen. 
They were perturbed by Stephen because Stephen, a mere mustard seed of a man, seemed to channel an authoritative power that they could not comprehend, even though they could sense it. They knew there was something different and powerful about Stephen, but it didn't lead them to God. It led them to kill Stephen. Stephen radiated power. That was a problem. Therefore, since they wielded the authority to take his life, to stamp him out as a threat to their understanding of truth, they did so. They executed him. They used their power against Stephen. But what happened when they exercised that power over Stephen? Were they successful in stamping out the fires of these Jesus followers? Did they crush it once and for all? No, far from it. In fact, the Sanhedrin's initial wave of persecution, which you'll remember Saul approved of, he was standing there approving of, and in their initial wave of persecution, that was the wind that stoked the fire of evangelism and spread it all around. That was the wind that spread the seeds of the gospel to distant places. The more they flexed their religious muscle, the further they spread the believers and the greater they impacted the kingdom. So without even knowing it, as they exerted their power over the Christians, it just led to that power that the Christians believed in spreading, and magnifying, and multiplying. That's how that works. So tell me, who's really in power? Is it Sanhedrin or is there something else going on? And so like Stephen, Philip represents kingdom power in the face of worldly power. We've met uh, Philip before, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6. How did Philip become a noteworthy and respected man in the kingdom? Where, what, in what context did we first meet Philip? What was he doing? So Philip. These are the seven men who are appointed as leader, elders to oversee the, the care of the widows, the Greek-speaking widows. There's a problem in the church. Unity was in jeopardy. People's needs weren't met. And Philip was one of the men who was appointed, along with Stephen, to help solve this problem, which means he was a trustworthy, servant-hearted man. Christy? No, it's, it's no, yeah, it's this Philip, um, which is, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, not the Apostle Philip, it's, it's this Philip. Um, that's how Philip became a person of power in the kingdom, because he was a person who refused power in the kingdom. He was a person who laid down his life to serve others. Uh, that, that's how he was elevated to the place of prominence in the kingdom. He, did, he, he demonstrated selfless, servant-hearted nature. He was known for his compassion for the weak and the vulnerable and the powerless. In this case, the Greek-speaking widows. Jesus had taught this lesson many times. That the Gentiles, they lord their power over their subjects. They beat their subjects over the head with their power. But among you... It will be different. In the kingdom of heaven, the master picks up a towel and washes the filthy feet of the follower. The master becomes like a slave. In the kingdom, those who lay down their lives are the ones who find life. In the kingdom, those who are least and last will be recognized as the first and the greatest. It's backwards. The kingdom is backwards. It's a paradox. To the eyes of the world, Philip, like Stephen, was just a nobody some toiling social worker wasting his time with unimportant people. That's what Philip is in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the kingdom of heaven, he's a hero, a huge hero, a great man. Philip was not upwardly mobile. He was not politically savvy. He didn't do any of the things that the world does to gain power. He was not powerful in any way. 
He was not powerful in any way that the world recognized, except he understood where real power comes from, what real power looks like. And it looks an awful lot like compassion and service. Real power is sourced in the Heavenly Father, who says you must be compassionate as I am compassionate. The Heavenly Father who sent his Son to feed his sheep and to die for his sheep. God uses his power to plant tiny mustard seeds of love that sprout and spread, no matter how hard the world tries to uproot it. And that is what Philip represents, that power that cannot be conquered by the world. A power that is beyond this world. A power that can't be stamped out, uprooted, and really can't be ignored. But Philip also represents something else, and this is what Chrissy was kind of getting at. Philip is part of a small group of people who really hijack the narrative of the book of of Acts from chapter 6 onward. The first wave of leaders in the church were the apostles, right? Led by Peter. And up to chapter 6, they dominate every... It's always Peter who's giving these great speeches that really influence change, that really spark the fire of the church. So the, the apostles are the first wave of leaders. And from this chapter on, we rarely hear from the apostles again. Peter has a major vision and is... Um, critical and implementing of, of allowing the Gentiles to be welcomed into the covenant. That's chapter 10. Other than that, it's the second wave of leaders. People like Stephen and Barnabas and Lydia and most notably, Paul. The second wave of leaders who, who do the dirty work. And you can add Philip to that list. In fact, Philip is prominently near the top of that list of important second wave leaders. That's why his name is listed in chapter 6 that Andrew read. It's Stephen, who is this huge turning point in the church. The next name that's listed is Philip. And as we move into chapter 8, after Stephen's speech, after all that Stephen accomplished, it's Philip who begins the work. Here's why Philip is important. Each of these second wave leaders moved the boundaries of the kingdom a little further from Jerusalem. Both geographically and religiously, the center of power is no longer Jerusalem. Stephen laid the groundwork for this with his speech in chapter 7 by undermining the necessity of the temple. That's what chapter 7 is all about. God is not affixed. We talked about this for eight weeks, so sorry for bringing it up again. But God is not affixed to any one location or to any one person or people. He moves around wherever he wants, and that's what he's doing here. And so through Stephen, the theology is that no longer are we grounded in Jerusalem. We can move out from Jerusalem. God is wherever his people are. And so this made clear that the presence of God was unchained to any one place, that the kingdom was ready to move out of Jerusalem, just as Jesus commanded in Acts 1 before he ascended to rule his creation. Jesus commanded them to eventually take the good news to the ends of the earth, even to <gasps> the Gentiles. The ends of the earth means Jerusalem as far out as possible, and you know who lives as far out as possible? Non-Jews. I mean, there's some Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire, but he's saying to the Gentiles. And so the rest, starting with Stephen in chapter 6, the focus of Acts becomes how God is working in including Gentiles. That's all Paul ever does. Even though he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, he works with the Gentiles. The second wave of leaders are instrumental in moving the boundaries away from Jerusalem. But I skipped a very important stepping stone between Judea, where Jews like Jesus and Peter lived, and the Gentiles, where life was totally foreign to Jews like Jesus and Peter. There's, there's a bridge in between those two vastly different ends of the spectrum. 
What does Jesus say in Acts 1? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where Stephen moved the gospel away from, and to Judea, where Jews like the apostles live, to where? What's the next sphere out? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth, where the completely un-Jewish Gentiles are. But Samaria represents something different. They are not Judea. They are not the Gentiles. They're in, they're somewhere in between. Samaria is the link between the legitimate Jews of Jesus' day and the totally non-Jewish Gentiles. And it was a tough link to make. That was a bridge that had been burned countless times in the hundreds of years before Jesus. There is centuries of hatred between Judeans and Samaritans. I won't go into the whole history, but the disagreement comes down to power, as it always does. Centuries earlier, after King Solomon's reign, the northern Samaritans split from the southern kingdom of Judah. The Samaritans had slightly different scripture than Judeans, and a real sense of self-righteousness arose in Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. That they were the ones that got it. The Samaritans were these half-breeds who intermingled in marriage, and they didn't get it. They were only partial Jews. To put it in modern terms, Jewish people, like Peter, would have viewed Samaritans kind of like how we view Mormons. They're kind of on the fringe. They, they get some of it, but not all of it. Very similar. That's how they would have viewed them. And then Judah began behaving like the privileged big brother, constantly giving noogies to his baby brother Samaria. When coming home from the exile, Samaria was forbidden to take a part in building the temple, which, if you're a Jew who's rebuilding their identity, the first thing you do is rebuild the temple. It's central to everything they were. The Samaritans were not allowed. And so they said, well, fine, I'm going to take my temple and I'm going to build my own temple on Mount Gerizim. Very petulant little brothery of them. And so there's the temple in Jerusalem, the temple in Mount Gerizim, and they hate each other. Then big brother Judea conquers Samaria 100 years before Jesus, and animosity really ramped up between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans became known as the lost sheep of Israel. Part of Israel, but not really. Does that make sense? And so in the life of Jesus, this comes into play all the time. When Jesus makes a point of, who is, of how to love your neighbor, who does he say? A good Samaritan, as an example of how to gain eternal life. And this was controversial. He's highlighting a point that God's, we respond to God's goodness by showing love, not by being theologically perfect. Samaritans were not that. But it didn't matter because he, he showed love to a neighbor and that made him will, or worthy of eternal life. That's a hugely controversial statement for Jesus to make. But he makes it. It's why Luke mentions with incredulousness that the, the one healed leper out of ten who returned to show worshipful gratitude to Jesus one out of ten comes back, and Luke makes special mention, and he was a Samaritan. Can you believe it? The one who comes back to say thanks was a Samaritan. It wasn't any of the Jewish people who should have recognized who Jesus was. A Samaritan recognized Jesus for who he was. He recognized the power inherent in Jesus and came back to worship him. A Samaritan did that. And finally, it's what makes his, his conversation with the immoral woman in John 4 triply remarkable. Not only is she a woman, shocking, not only is she a well-known sinner, unheard of, but she's actually a sinful female Samaritan. And that, my friends, is three big strikes against this woman. 
And yet here's Jesus revealing to her, giving her dignity, giving her worth that she deserves, and revealing to her, of all people, the mysteries of true worship and the nature of his Messiahship. And do you remember the first question she asked? Jesus went, you must be a prophet. Hey, by the way, which, which mountain are we, should we worship at? Because that's the central dividing thing between Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus obliterates that discussion. He says, the time is coming where you'll worship in spirit. Or, I shouldn't misquote Jesus. But he totally undermines that argument. A Samaritan woman is the first per- one of the first people in, in John to recognize Jesus as Messiah. It's like Samaria and Judah are these fighting brothers. Like, my brothers and I fight, not often, because we don't see each other very often, but we do fight, not physically. I've never had a thrown a fist in my life. Our fighting is more with words. Um, and when you fight, that hurts more. I, like, my brother's words cut me deeper than just some, some person who lives in Clyde, right? Because the love is deeper, the, the connection is deeper. And so the hurt is deeper. And that's what it is between Judah, Judea, and Samaria. So all of this, the reason I bring any of this up, is to say that Jesus had demonstrated a willingness to build bridges with this people group who resented an extra sphere away from proper Judaism. Jesus built all these bridges with the Samaritans. Even though in Matthew 10 he commands the disciples not to go to Samaria, that's just because Samaria is not ready. Now they're ready. Obviously, because through Philip, the Holy Spirit closes the gap between the spheres. Soon the gospel will head out to the ends of the earth. And that happens in this chapter, Philip, his work with the Ethiopian. That Ethiopia is the beginning of the ends of the earth. But first it must go out to Samaria. And so God is advancing his kingdom in powerful ways, although not powerful in a traditionally worldly sense of the word powerful, but still powerful through our humble hero, Philip. Philip was, perhaps surprisingly, given the anger between Jews and Samaritans, he was received very favorably in Samaria. In fact, it says, Scripture says that they listened intently to his arguments as though as one man, as verse 6 says, as though as one man, which is funny to me because listening like a man isn't exactly considered a positive in my household. And you would argue that listen. If all the Samaritans are listening as though one man, that means they're nodding and grunting, uh-huh, uh-huh, while they watch the hockey game. That's, that's listening like a man in my household, but I digress. In this case, listening as though one man means that all eyes, all ears, all hearts are completely attentive to Philip's message. Every man and woman that, that heard Philip was completely enraptured by what he had to say. They, they were captivated by his message of hope and reconciliation through the awaited restorer, Jesus Christ. The Jews awaited the Messiah. The Samaritans awaited something like a Messiah. I forget what the word is. But it means restore, the one who would restore them. And so they were ready for this message of Philip, that the restorer has come. As was the case in Jesus and the apostles' work in Judea here, in enemy territory, the message of good news was supported by powerful signs. Signs like the heal, healing of, of the possessed, the paralyzed, and the lame. That's what it says in Acts 8. With his message came acts of power, signs of power. Acts of powerful compassion performed for the benefit of powerless nobodies to the glory of our powerful God. These signs were confirmations of the truth of Philip's message, that the restorer had come. But that fact somehow got lost 
on someone very noteworthy, very important, who is also introduced along with Philip in chapter or in verse nine. So, ladies and gentlemen, meet Simon. No, not Simon Peter, the apostle, and no, not Simon the Zealot, another apostle of Jesus, and no, not Simon Jesus's half brother, and no, not Simon the leper from Bethany, and no, not Simon the Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ, and no, not Simon Iscariot, Judas's dad. It's a whole bunch of Simons. And it's easy to get them mixed up. It's none of those guys. None of the six other Simons mentioned in the Gospels. I wouldn't blame you for being confused. This is Simon the Magician, known in church tradition as Simon Magus. or Magus. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. Simon the Magician. And his story is a fascinating one. We will examine Simon much more in depth next week and his unhealthy fascination with power that was on display through the Holy Spirit. Simon is a fascinating case study. But for now, I want us to note how Luke compares Philip and Simon. Simon is presented as someone who leads his people through his powerful acts of magic. magic. And what that looks like, exactly, we don't know, but I wish we knew. I wish we knew what kinds of things Simon could do that got all of the people hanging on his every word. They treated him like a prophet. In fact, they labeled him as the power of the great God, is what they called him, which is, if you're going to get a nickname, a pretty sweet nickname, the power of the great God. And so, yeah, they hung on his every word. They soaked up his every action. He was a culmination of the power of celebrity, the power of superstition, and the power of charisma. And we have lots of people like that working the church circuits today. They're no less so than back then. In fact, if you turn to any televangelist in the 80s, you're going to get this, charisma, superstition, celebrity, and oh, by the way, at the end of the show, please send in $50. Well, Simon had this power, and he had it for an awfully long time, which makes the beginning of Simon's story seem like a beautiful story of true discipleship. Because he had this power for so long, and he was so well-esteemed in, in his community, it makes it sound like a really good story, I think. Because at first, at first, he hears Philip and witnesses the power that Philip wields and is amazed by it. He's so amazed, in fact, that he believes Philip's message and is baptized. That, that seems like an act of repentance, turning from magic, which is probably ungodly, turning from that and now following Philip. That's, that seems like a really great victory for the kingdom of God to have someone powerful like this put aside their power and want this power. Seems like a good story. He doesn't compete with Philip, as happens to Paul throughout the book of Acts. Paul confronts powerful people, rips, rip, robs them of their power, and then they hate Paul. And entire communities would rise up against Paul. But that doesn't happen with, with Simon. Simon, he doesn't compete with Philip. He doesn't resent Philip. Instead, he falls in behind Philip. He, he follows Philip. He wants to know, learn from Philip. And he seems to become a true disciple. He appears to give up his power an appreciation of a deeper power beyond his control. And ultimately, that's what baptism is. It says Philip is baptized. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a transaction of power, giving over control of our lives, dying to ourselves, and turning our lives over to the one who has the power to save us and raise us to new life. Baptism is a transition of power. And Simon underwent that. So at first, it would seem like Simon's story is a story of turning over power from self to savior, a victory for the kingdom, right? Maybe you've read ahead. Dennis is reading ahead right now. See how it is. Well, it would be 
of victory for the kingdom if Simon's belief had been in the power of sacrifice and service and not just in the power of miracles and wonders. If, if Simon's belief led to a change of heart, then it would have been a great victory. I think that next week Simon's heart will be exposed as no less corrupt and no less power hungry than when he first encountered Philip. He was the same old Simon. It's just he craved a different kind of power. Sadly, Simon is an example of surface-level belief in Jesus that never affects true change of the heart. That is the worst kind of belief. In fact, if that is where you stay, at that surface-level belief in God, you are worse off than people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Way worse. It's not hard to believe in the power of our God. Anyone, how many people in the community do you talk to about church and stuff and say, oh, I believe in God? That means nothing. In fact, it means less than nothing. That is the most dangerous place you can be in, to just believe in God. James says the demons, they believe in, the, in God. They totally believe in Jesus' power. Every time Jesus encounters a demon, they say, oh, we know who you are. Get away from us. We want nothing to do with you. Because he defeats them. He conquers them. The demons believe in Jesus. Belief is never enough. It must be accompanied by submission of the heart and love for both God and neighbor. If it's really belief, then it will soak from the brain into the heart and will affect everything about you. That's how you know it's real. Because belief is not a bad word in Scripture. Many people believe and are changed. With Simon, it is a dirty word. Belief is a bad word. Because he stayed at just believing signs and wonders. Which Jesus condemns. In the Gospel of John, People who cling to signs and wonders as the only thing that makes them follow Jesus, Jesus condemns that. That is a broken, incomplete faith. Simon is blinded by power, and what begins as a happy story quickly goes sideways, as we'll see next week. It's a powerful lesson. Actually, as I read it, it really convicts me deeply. So in conclusion, what can we apply to our faith this week? What have we learned about power so far? Well, here's the most important thing. God is always in the habit of using his power to demonstrate his great love for enemies. Enemies like the Samaritans. Enemies like you and I. We're enemies, we're distant from God, we're enemies of him. But he uses his great power to, not, to, to make us no longer enemies, but now family. People who were even further away from the Father than the Samaritans were from the Judeans. They were pretty far from right thinking. We're even further. We're, we're the ends of the earth that Jesus was talking about. And still we are welcomed in. Still we are part of the story. Despite their animosity, despite their biases and their history of hatred, despite all the garbage between them, God's powerful love broke through the mess and created brothers and sisters out of rivals and enemies. Um, Philip took a great risk in going to Samaria. But God's power went with him. And the Samaritans, they took a great risk in welcoming and listening to Philip. They were convinced by God's gracious power. It's power that fuels Philip to go to Samaria, and it's power that convinces the Samaritans. God's power does amazing things in small, mustard seed type people like you and me. I think we all need a reminder of the potential for divine power that resides within us, as long as our belief moves from the head down to the heart. If it stays in the head, we have no power. If it moves from the head to the heart and, and changes everything about us, 
and we are filled, we are infused with holy power. The same kind of power that Ezekiel says the, the priests had to prepare their meals in separate corners of the room so they wouldn't transmit that holiness to the common people and endanger them. We are a danger to others because we are filled with power. Not a danger that harms, but a danger that will revolutionize people's lives in ways that they may not expect. And so I think we need a reminder of the power that's inside of us. It's helpful to me. It, it happens to be one of the great paradoxes of, of our kingdom, that there is life in sacrifice, that there is victory in submission, that in powerless people like you and I, we can do powerful, miraculous things. Do you think Philip's anything special compared to us? No. He's just a regular guy who was willing to submit his life to Jesus. And in so doing, was infused with power. Next week, we'll discuss that power further. But for now, how can we be empowered by our belief in him? What does our belief in him empower us to do? And secondly, who are you being called to demonstrate God's powerful love to? Like Philip. And I got bad news for you. Maybe it's bad news. Maybe it's good news. It might be an enemy. It might be someone you don't even like. Somebody who hates you because of what you believe in. Sounds a lot like Philip and the Samaritans. But they were welcoming. They were convinced by the power inside. Let's pray. Uh, God, you are strong. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are all of those things. But Father, thank you that you use your, your mightiness and your power and your strength to show us love, to transform us into something that looks more like your son. We are unworthy of that, but we thank you for your great power inside of us, constantly shaping us into you, constantly becoming salt and light to our neighbors around us. I pray that we would be bold and powerful as Philip was um, to represent you well in this world. Even though the Samaritans were far from you, Jesus, we know that we were further way further. You still welcome us in. You have that power to do that, not just to us, but to anyone in our lives. Um, thank you for the story of Philip and Simon and how we see what worldly power looks like. Help us to reject that and to embrace kingdom power. The paradox of laying down our life to find life. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. I'm really excited for next week's sermon. Uh, the story of Simon is a really, really interesting one. And, uh, feel free to read it ahead of time and familiarize yourself with it. Uh, and yeah, we'll talk about it more next week. Have a great week.